0: In 1934, a man named Leslie Newbegin left his native England and spent 40 years in India as a missionary. And then he returned in 1974. And when he returned, he observed that the England that he had left 40 years ago was vastly different than the England that he had returned to. He noticed what the church in England had not noticed. He got there and he felt like everybody was asleep because what he noticed was in that 40 years, England had moved from a country that was built around Christian foundations and where church and the gospel were central to a post-Christian society where they were not Christian in their ways of thinking and in their ways of acting. And he was trained to think like a missionary. And so he began to say, okay, I'm going to look at my home country, England, as a mission field. And what is this foreign culture that I'm now returning to? He was born there, but it was foreign to him. It was a different land than the one he left. And so he brought fresh missionary eyes and he started to teach and to write books And to try to wake up the the church that something had changed in the last 40 years. And he said this. He quoted a Chinese proverb if you want to know about water, don't ask fish. He said, Western Christians are totally unaware that the religious beliefs of their cultures that they've been swimming in have changed. It's like the frog that you drop into the water and slowly let it boil. They don't know that the temperature has changed. And so he said this. He charged the church that we need to take up a missionary encounter with Western culture. Our sermon series this week or this summer is "Sent Living the Mission of God. And it's a little bit interesting because generally we think of missionaries like people who go to India but what we're trying to spur in your hearts is to realize that you are on the mission field every single day. Where, the, where you live, where you work, the hobbies that you do, these are all ripe areas to be a mission field. We're looking at the life of Paul. And how his missionary journeys, the different things that he does there, inform the way that we live. Last week Mike talked about the power of a testimony, and we learned about the Philippian jailer, and the powerful testimony, and how when we share our testimony, lives change. Today we're going to look at Paul as he goes to Athens. And our, our preaching text is actually this beautiful sermon that he gives on Mars Hill to all of these intellectuals and politicians but most of us probably don't do that every single day is give sermons to very powerful people. Do you? Probably not. And so I want to back up a little bit and say, how did he get there? How did he show up there? He didn't just walk into town and they said, hey, let's let, let him get up in the pulpit. No, not at all. How did he get there? What did he do? What was the missionary approach that he took to the city? And I want to look at three specific things. And I'm indebted to the Anglican scholar and pastor John Stott for these three things. He he said, we want to look at what Paul sees, what Paul feels, and what Paul says. And so I want to specifically look at what does it look like to look at our culture through missionary eyes, to see our culture with fresh eyes with a missionary heart to feel what God feels towards the people in our lives. And then finally, our missionary voice. What are we to say to people? The intent of this sermon is for Christians in the room. It's meant to equip you all for the work of ministry. But if you're on the fence about what you think about Christianity, I think that there's going to be some things in here that resonate with you as well. So tune in. So if you all will open with me to... Acts 17, verse 16. So we're going to back up a little bit from his address at the Areopagus at Mars Hill back to verse 16. So when he shows up, what does he see in Athens? He's alone in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. And so he is all alone, a little Jewish boy in a big old city, And he's wandering around, and if you know anything about Athens, this was the main cultural city of the region, apart from Rome, probably the main cultural city in the world. And he didn't just do the city, he saw the city. He wasn't just a tourist, because if he was a tourist, which he certainly did touristy things, but he saw the city, he would have seen, just as a tourist, beautiful architecture. That's where the Parthenon was in all of its glory. I got to see it a number of years ago, and it's still amazing, even though it's been 2,000 years. He would see history, that this was the birthplace of democracy, this was the birthplace of philosophy, and he would see that this was a rich cultural center. If any city, especially if you were alone, could take your breath away and make you feel small and insignificant and cower... And think, I don't have anything to offer this city. What does the gospel have to bring to this city? This would be that city. This would be that experience for Paul, where he would shrink away. But he didn't come as a tourist. He wasn't completely marveled by those things. He appreciated their beauty, but he came as a missionary with missionary eyes. And so what does he see? I want you to notice the text just jumps right into it. In verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. He saw. Later in 22 and 23, when he's addressing Mars Hill, he says this I perceived, I observed, I passed along. He saw. And he saw that it was full of idols. And this word, full of idols, only appears once in the whole New Testament. And actually, it only appears once in the whole Greek language. There's no other occurrence of this word. It's almost like Paul made this word up. It's not just that it was full of idols. The word means more that it was under idols. That the number of idols in Athens was so great that the city was literally smothered by the idols, that it was like an overgrown forest full of idols. That's what he saw. He didn't just see the beauty, but he saw the horror of the idolatry. See, having missionary eyes means seeing through the shiny and alluring idols of the culture and beginning to see those things that are actually stumbling blocks to people. Stumbling blocks of what true worship looks like. How they're worshiping the beautiful things rather than the truly beautiful one, God himself. So when you look at your culture, try to look at it through fresh eyes. What do you see? Do we have missionary eyes to see the idols underneath our culture that are smothering our culture? Now, we've talked about idols a lot in this past year, so I'm not going to beat that point home. Um, but as you all know, for, for Paul, uh, the idolatry of Athens was clear. There was literal statues and temples that people would go to worship different gods. But in American culture, we have probably more idols than they did, but it's a little more underground. And we've talked about it before, that, that idea that an idol is any good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. John Stott writes that they can be material things, the things we fill up our lives with, that vie for our devotion, but also mental things. It could be thoughts that consume us, ambitions, jealousy, those kinds of things. And it could be, so those are kind of the thoughts of the heart and then there's the thoughts of the mind. That That our culture has certain idols, one of them is pluralism. That your truth is just as good as my truth and so I can't tell you anything And I can't impose my beliefs or share my beliefs with you because that's going to threaten you. That's one of the idols of our culture. Or empiricism. That idea that if it can't be tasted or seen or tested, then, then we can't believe in it. So there's material idols as well as mental idols. So what do you see when you look at your culture? Specifically, not just kind of American culture... Or, you know, Western culture. But what do you see in the people that you interact with on a daily basis? What are those idols? If Paul was to show up in your group of people, what would he see? So I, I want to think through, how do we see those idols? How do we begin to get an eye for the idols? To get fresh missionary eyes? Well, first, that we have to be involved in the lives of those who are non-Christians. That's the first thing. We see that Paul went into the marketplace. He went amongst the people. He actually left the synagogues and it said daily he went into the marketplace to rub shoulders with people. And the challenge is that oftentimes we get stuck in the church bubble. And and living on means moving from a reactive, like, hey, maybe a non-Christian will show up in my life and I'll get the chance to share the gospel with him, to a proactive. I'm going to go. I'm going to see what God's doing out there in the world. And I like to think of three different areas. This is this kind of my simple thing that I think of. Where you live, so that's your neighborhood. The people you live amongst. Where you work, so that's your job. Your workplace. Or maybe the places that you volunteer. And finally, where you play. Where your hobbies are. And so I want you to imagine your time spent with people is a pie chart, and I want you to think through, if, if uh, I were to give a slice of the non-Christians that I have intentional time with on a weekly basis, what percentage would that be? Think about it. Is it just a bubble of Christians that you just pretty much hang out with Christians all the time? That when you see, I, I know for me, when I find a Christian at a party, you know, if my wife and I are at somewhere and I find somebody who's a Christian, I'm like, hey, okay, let's hang out the whole time. Or if I find, you know, that I'm, I'm doing something and I find out somebody's a Christian, I'm like, hey, let's, you know, let's huddle up, man. You know, like that world out there, they're, they're bad. We got to huddle up. The reality is three years ago, I looked at my life and looked at that pie chart. And apart from people that, were in the church, but we're kind of struggling with their faith. or are not really sure what they think. It was a big zero for me. Zero percent of people. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like I talk about being on mission for God, but I'm not really on mission. And so what my wife and I decided to do is just pick a couple hobbies. We didn't do much recreation. Our bodies were kind of, my, my dad bod was like coming before the baby was here. And so we decided um, I'm, I'm going to start a volleyball meetup group and just to get to know people and to rub shoulders, to kind of be able to learn from people. What what do people outside of the church like? I felt like I was in a cave. And so the first thing is to step out into the world where people are. And a lot of you are already out in there, so you're already doing that first. The second step of seeing is observing. Looking at them through missionary eyes. At your workplace this week, Just stop and listen. What are they talking about? What are they striving for? What are they living for? Pretty soon you'll begin to, as Paul saw, the idols of Athens, you'll begin to see the idols of your workplace. It might be a little convicting because you're like, I talk about and think about the same things. But don't worry about, just focus on outward right now. Don't worry about yourself. Um, And then the other thing is your friend group. What do they long for? What are they looking to for satisfaction? So begin to look at your world with missionary eyes. And the challenge is that it can easily go from observation to condemnation. You're like, yeah, you guys are a bunch of idol worshipers. I go to church on Sunday. Y'all are messed up. But that's not at all what Paul was doing. He wasn't taking notes in order to be able to throw stones at them. He was picking up clues and what their hearts longed for, and then said, no, really, your hearts long for something even greater. Notice here, in the beginning of his speech, he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He said, hey, look, you guys are seeking after gods. You're longing to connect with God. He says, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That, that altar has literally been found and, and it says, to the unknown God. He says, listen here. This is where he builds a bridge from where they're at to the gospel. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I now proclaim to you. He comes and says, what your heart truly longs for is to know the God who made you and loves you, and I'm now going to tell you about him." And so that's what it looks like to live with missionary eyes, to see people in the midst of their idolatry, and to lead them to what they truly most long for. So the next thing is, once he sees, how does he react? What does he do? Not what does he do, sorry, what does he feel? What's his heart, his missionary heart? Notice it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked. And this is a very interesting word because it means roused. It means that he was grieved, his heart was broken, that there was a sense of anger there. I had a kid in our uh, youth group that um, got into drugs and I could feel in my own heart and in the the lives of his family and his friends a sense of anger because these drugs that we knew would never satisfy him was stealing his life and his joy. That's part of what Paul was feeling, but not only was he feeling a certain sense of grief for the individuals, but he was feeling the same word is actually used in the Old Testament, This idea of the jealousy that God, that God's heart was aroused to jealousy when they worshipped the golden calf, when they worshipped idols. And so it was almost like Paul was feeling this zeal that God should be worshipped and God alone. And that doesn't quite make sense to me. This kind of, it's not right. But I watched a movie recently called The Founder. It's about Ray Kroc, the founder of, the founder of McDonald's. If you've watched it, you know that that's kind of a misnomer. Um, So Ray Kroc is just a two-bit salesman, and he comes across these two guys, Richard and Maurice McDonald. And Richard and Maurice have done something incredible. They have taken a burger joint and turned it into an efficient machine that's able to make burgers like this. And they thought, you know what, let's not have plates, let's not have forks, let's just put it in wrappers so that people can grab their burger, eat it, and then throw it in the trash. That's pretty normal to us, but that was revolutionary at the time. And thus, they came up with the idea of fast food. And Ray Kroc said, that's genius. Hey, you all, I got an idea what if we uh, franchise this baby? And they're like, hey, we had that idea as well, you know? And they actually showed him a design, showed Ray Kroc a design, and there was golden arches, and he was like, ooh, that's beautiful. And so Ray Kroc went on the road while they were working on, on the business. He went on the road trying to franchise it. And he signed some contracts with some loopholes. And the next couple years, what he did was begin to take control of the way the food was made away from those guys, and he began to take credit for their ideas. And then what he actually did, I'm sorry, I'm totally ruining the movie for you, but it's it's so angering, what he actually did is wrote them out of the financial part of it so that they ended up not really making a whole lot of money off McDonald's. And then what he did is he said, you now, the contract stipulates that you now have to change the name of your restaurant. And he built a McDonald's right across the street. And three years later, their, their restaurant was gone. And at the very end of the movie, he's sitting there practicing his speech before prominent businessmen, and he, and he starts telling the story of how McDonald's was started, and he, and he basically said, I came up with the idea. It was all my idea. I'm the man. And towards the end of the movie, you are like, this is so wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. He's getting glory for what the other guys did. And that's exactly what Paul was feeling. He felt this indignation, this zeal for God's glory and for his name, that God and God alone should be worshipped. And those idols are false idols and they're taking glory away from God. And so that's what Paul felt. That's how zealous he was. For God's glory. And I confess a lot of times that's not what drives me out into the world. God's glory a zeal for God's glory. So my encouragement is if you're like me, if you're lacking in zeal, pray. And ask the Holy Spirit to stir up the fires of your heart for God's glory. So that's what Paul saw in the people. That's what he felt when he saw the idols being worshiped. And then I want to look at what Paul said. He said this, he went out and he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons. So he started with the religious community, but then it says every day he went into the marketplace amongst the common folks, and that he actually began to dialogue with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers who were the top thinkers of the day. But I want to focus on that he reasoned. He reasoned. You see, Paul had been watching He'd been seeing the culture. He'd been feeling what the vibes of the culture were, so to speak. And he realized he was not in Jerusalem, the city of prophets, where you could stand up in the temple and yell out, repent, repent. And people would listen to you and be like, oh, this guy's from the Lord. He realized that's not where he was. He was in the city of philosophers. And so he reasoned with them. He understood the way the culture worked And he worked within the manners and the language of the culture. And he began to go and reason with them, to share with them about Jesus and the resurrection, but also, hey, this is where you're at, but this is what what you really long for is for Jesus. And a lot of times today, um, we think, how should we go out into the world? How should we go on mission? And a lot of times we think like, okay, if I'm gonna be a missionary in my neighborhood, I gotta go door to door, right? That's not the way our culture works anymore. Forty years ago, people would come door to door selling knives. Think about that. Imagine if somebody came to your house today and said, hey, I've got some knives. Can I come in and sell them to you? You'd be like, no, man, you can stay. Now we're like, if we see somebody on our porch that we don't know, we're just like, okay, hopefully they'll go away. So door to door is not the way to do it. You know, screaming prophetically on a, on a campus, you know, repent, you're all sinners, is not the way to do it. L- listen, he reasoned with them. And our culture is very similar today. The way that what you say, you shouldn't really be preaching at people, you should be reasoning with them, conversing with them, saying, hey, let's read a book together. People have book groups, that's not abnormal, let's read a book about Jesus. Alpha is great for that. It's a perfect environment because you just say, hey, come and ask your questions. We're not going to force anything on you. We're going to tell you about God, but we also want you to tell us about what you believe. And so if you've been wondering, I've got this person, what do I do with them? I've been reasoning with them some. Invite them to Alpha. Some of you are not really sure what you think about Jesus, but you're here, and you've come to church, and you're like, the sermons are pretty good. I I don't really connect with it sometimes. Well, come to Alpha. That's probably a better spot for you because you just share a meal, and you sit down, and you talk about what you believe, and you hear kind of the core about what Christianity is all about. So that's what Paul saw. And then Paul felt this Broken-heartedness for the people of God. And then he opened his mouth and he spoke. And notice, as he reasoned with them, they wanted to hear more. So they invited him to this place. This is the Areopagus. That looks pretty special, doesn't it? Looks just like kind of a big bulbous hill to me. But at the time, this was the philosophical political and religious center where all the main ideas of Athens in the, in the ancient world were traded. And he got invited to go speak. And there's no real, real equivalent in our day. It would literally be like a Harvard lecture hall, a TED talk, and being on Capitol Hill all at the same time. And he spoke this amazing sermon. And I would love to preach for 20 more minutes about how great the sermon was, but I don't have time. So, What I'm going to encourage you to do is on your way out, there is a little sheet that walks through this sermon and I want you to hear how he shares the gospel with them. It's different than the way he shares in the synagogues. And there's a few questions and at the very end, there's a prayer that you're going to pick somebody in where you live, work, or play and you're going to pray for them. That God will give you a missionary heart and a missionary eyes and a missionary voice to speak the good news into their lives. Let's do so together as we pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news that we are your children, that we are forgiven, that we are loved by you. Lord, help us, give us missionary eyes to see people in the midst of their brokenness, the things they're running after. Lord, give us a heart for your glory so that we won't rest until you and you alone are worshiped. And Lord, give us a voice to reason with people, to invite people, to speak loving words about Jesus as we live on mission for you. Amen.